glad to have you uh, back again. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Madison Russ. Um, I get to co-teach this with Nicole. And so um, we're just going to get, we're just going to pray to get started before we dive in. Father God, I just come, I just thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight with these women, Lord. Lord, I pray just with everything that's happening in our everyday lives, Lord, that's happening in the world, I just pray that you would calm our minds, um, give us peace, and Lord, just uh, let this time, just let us focus on who you are, and Lord, I pray that uh, through your word that you would show us your son tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, thanks to the lovely Oklahoma weather. So in a way of quick recap, week one, Nicole opened the letter to the Colossians for us and mentioned that the primary purpose of Paul's writing was to warn against false teaching that threatened I'm getting mixed signals. Threaten the Colossian believers. <laughs> Much ink has been spilled on what exactly the false teaching was beyond theologians referring to it as the Colossian heresy. Unfortunately, even after weeks of study, I don't have it all figured out for you, but I do have a lens I'd like to suggest as we walk through the passage verse by verse. So last semester in the Hosea study, we saw the syncretism of Israel's religion or the mixing of worship. Uh, the worship of Yahweh, and the false gods of Canaan. The most convincing explanation of the Colossian heresy is another form of syncretism, a mixing of Judaism, and a mystical paganism from the surrounding culture of Colossae. Most scholars believe the book of Colossians was more like vitamins and supplements, working as a preventative against the false teaching rather than a full-blown antibiotic against a disease that had taken over the local gathering of believers. That's where I land, too, based on how we see Paul um, come in their faith uh, from Epaphras' firsthand knowledge and his greeting, and then again a couple of times in the section we'll cover tonight. We also see a contrast of tone between Colossians and the letter to the Galatians. In Galatians, Paul completely skips the usual Thanksgiving and prayer section of his letters and gets right into letting them know that there's a problem. He jumps straight to, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he ends that section by saying, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. He doesn't just say that once, he says it twice. So immediately readers know that there is a big dangerous problem in Galatia. That doesn't seem to be the situation in Colossae, at least not at the time of Paul's writing. But the false teachings around, and by the fact that Paul never explicitly describes it in this letter, we can gather the Colossian believers are aware and familiar of what Paul is warning them of. We have the more difficult task of piecing together what little he does include about the false teaching and what he says about the gospel that has come to the Colossians to kind of figure it out. In week one, we saw Paul's normal way of greeting for the Colossians, and we saw him make a beeline to who Christ is and what he has accomplished. This week, you saw why that's how he began. He wanted them to have a clear picture of Christ, a clear picture of who he is and what he's done and who the Colossians are in light of that. 
And pulling from that rich Christological poem in chapter 1, Paul will begin to combat the lies that threaten to distract the Colossians from the word of truth they've already heard, understood, and learned. In 123, Paul had just stated that he has become a minister of the gospel that he's described and that which is being proclaimed. The section for chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5 follows that. Think of it as Paul laying out his case as to why he has the right to warn of people that he's never met. We're going to read those verses. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So verse 24, Paul begins this section with telling the Colossians he rejoices in his sufferings. We saw last year in James that trials of various kinds are to be counted joy. And in your homework, you saw that suffering is part of the Christian life. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's evidence that we're worthy of the kingdom of God. And, it's, and if we're to be glorified with Christ, we must suffer with him now. I want to pause for just a moment and think out loud with you about who is saying these words in Colossians. Paul had endured a stoning where his assailants had thought he was dead and left him. You can read that in Acts 14. He would uh, had many imprisonments, one being um, right now as he's writing, countless beatings, three shipwrecks, starvations, among other things. He gives kind of a list in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul knew suffering, and he knew its place in the life of a believer. His next phrase, though, is confusing at first look. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Whenever we reach something confusing like this, we have to remember to look through other parts of Scripture to help us interpret what message is being conveyed. We know that when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, atonement was made for sin. This is not talking about anything lacking in Christ's redemptive work. The explanation I read that made the most sense to me was threefold. First, Paul is fully aware of Christ's connection to his body, the church. Remember when the Lord appeared to Paul on the way to Damascus, his first question was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Christ's people suffer, he identifies with them. So that's the first piece. Christ's afflictions, Christ's afflictions mentioned here are the direct afflictions of his body, the bride. 
The next piece on filling up what is lacking, commentators described as a fixed limit of suffering that God has determined the church will endure in the last days, which is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. You can look at Mark 13 and Revelation 2, the letter to Smyrna, for where they get that idea. Paul's for your sake would then be for the church at large. The idea is that the more that Paul suffered, the more he filled up that determined amount of suffering and the less that the rest of the church would have to endure. Verses 25 and 26, Paul's God-given ministry to make the word of God fully known has reached the Colossians through Epaphras. And the word of God holds the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Throughout the Old Testament, God pointed to the mystery, though it hadn't been fully revealed, shown, or described. What once was not seen or understood has been made known to the saints, those who have believed. I preferred the CSB translation of verse 27 because the ESVs was a bit clunky. I tried to include lots of practice uh, for looking at verses in different translations in your homework. That's an easy go-to in studying the Bible when you reach something you can't quite grasp in the translation you usually use. So the CSB verse 27 said, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Though the mystery was given first to the Jews, foreshadowed through the Old Testament among the people of Israel, God had always desired for the, in, for the Gentiles to be brought near. We see that from God's calling of Abraham, that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed, through the prophets, that God's chosen servant would be a light to the nations. And by way of examples of Gentiles being brought into Israel, like Rahab and Ruth, and what good news for Colossae, as it was primarily a Gentile community, and what great news for us in the room today. I want you to note, before we move on, how Paul has already spoken of the gospel. He's included words like riches and wealth and glory. John Calvin said on this note, We must always notice how highly Paul speaks of the dignity of the gospel, for he was aware that the ingratitude of humanity is such that although this treasure is inestimable and the grace of God in it so wonderful, they nevertheless carelessly despise it, or at least think lightly of it. That was convicting to me. May we speak of the gospel in the same ways as Paul, for the gospel here is summed up as Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that phrase begins a theme that runs through the rest of the book, our union with Christ, Christ in us, us in in Christ. There's a repeated emphasis on everyone in verse 28. Three times it's included, warning everyone, teaching everyone, and presenting everyone mature in Christ. It's possible the false teaching pushed for an elitism, like a superior spirituality that could be attained by following their practices. Paul makes clear that the true gospel is for everyone. Warning or admonishing in other translations is correcting wrong information and beliefs. Teaching is the positive side of the same coin, sharing truth to equip the saints. Paul's desire is for everyone to be mature or complete, perfect. The Greek word there is telos. It's not simply for people to come to the faith and then stop. We will not be glorified, made completely perfect until Christ returns again, but maturity is what we're after. One commentator described telos this way, to be telos is the complete and undivided way 
in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God or toward Christ. This is ultimately the process of our sanctification, becoming holy as God is holy. The warning, teaching, and presenting everyone mature comes by proclaiming Christ. The Spirit is doing the work of conforming the saints to Christ's image by proclaiming him. Verse 29, and this is what Paul struggles, contends, and toils for with the energy God powerfully works within him. The word struggle there and in the next verse involves connotations of blood, sweat, and tears. Paul recognizes his ministry is not of his own strength, but of God's glorious might and power. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he shifts from his general ministry to the church at large because he wants the Colossians to see his direct care and struggle for their spiritual well-being and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was about 12 miles up the road. We'll see more about them in week four. Even though Paul has not met these believers face to face, he still has a love and concern for them even amidst his own imprisonment. And his struggling and contending for them happens primarily through prayer. We've seen some of his prayers for the Colossians in his opening, but here again he tells us he prays for their hearts to be encouraged, to be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. One thing to note on the heart there, we read that and we think emotions and feelings. But at this time, the heart would have still referenced the center of the person as a whole. Personality, feelings, thoughts, will, actions, all of it. So the encouragement Paul prays for them would touch every aspect of their being, not that they would only feel encouraged. He prays for unity for the Colossians, to be knit together in love, which might seem slightly random because so far division doesn't necessarily seem to be an issue uh, in Colossae. Regardless, unity in Christ and love for one another is of utmost importance to any local gathering of believers, but even more so when false teaching threatens to come in and begin dividing. He prays for them to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding. This seems very applicable. If they are fully assured in the gospel, the life and work of Jesus Christ, false teaching will not be able to move in easily. They would be confident in what they've already received. The knowledge of God's mystery is the last thing he mentions specifically, and he plainly states again, in case they missed it, the mystery is Christ. And in Christ, there is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 2, 3 through 6 says, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Christ is the embodiment of all God's wisdom and knowledge. He is wisdom personified. All those hidden treasures are in Christ. It would be futile to search elsewhere for what only exists in him. Which then leads Paul to tell the Colossians what his point of writing is. Paul doesn't want any of the Colossians to be deceived or tricked by reasonable sounding arguments. Here's the thing about false teaching then and now. It sounds so close to the right thing. It sounds good at first. Jude 4 speaks of false teachers creeping in unnoticed. They use just enough truth to pique 
the hearer's interest, to warm them up to them, to build trust, and then they twist, add, or subtract from the whole truth for their own agendas. This is why Paul has spent time having the Colossians behold Christ. The key of discernment is determining the difference between right and almost right. And to have that level of discernment, a long look at the truth, being immersed in the real thing, studying the image of the invisible God is a must. In chapter 2, verse 5, as I've said, I think at this point it, it shows us that the, the false teaching is only a threat for Colossians, for the Colossians to actively guard against because Paul gives them another commendation for their faith. Although he's not with them physically, he's united with them in the spirit and rejoices to see their good order and firmness of faith in Christ. The good order and firmness terms there give military imagery of Paul inspecting the Colossians and finding them exactly as they should be, resisting anything contrary to their faith in Christ. Now, at this point in the letter is where Paul shifts from the indicatives to the imperatives. I asked you in the homework at this point what the therefore was there for. The indicatives are the truths that Paul has established up to this point who Christ is, what God has accomplished through him. Simply think the why. Because of the truth of the why, the imperatives are the do, the actions that should result from the truths. Imperatives properly flow from indicatives. Or in simpler terms, some of you are looking at me funny, simpler terms, right action flows from right knowledge and right belief. When we put the imperatives, the do's, before the indicatives, the why, or we leave out the why altogether, that's where legalism or just simply wrong heart motives begin to play out. The commands for the church flow from the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. He is our why. We have to see and believe the why before we try to accomplish the do. The first section of imperatives that goes through the end of chapter 2 pertains specifically to the Colossians' handling of the false teaching. Nicole will cover more imperatives with their everyday thinking and, and their life next week. So we're going to look at verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, forgive us, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So verse 6, first that word received in the original language implies a passing on of tradition. What is the tradition they've received? Christ Jesus, the Lord. 
This is the only time Paul or any other New Testament writer uses this exact combination of titles. So we're going to slow down because it's worth um, understanding each of these words because I know in my own heart that familiarity breeds apathy. And so just like how we think and talk about the gospel, we hear these names of Jesus all the time, so much so that some people think Christ is Jesus's last name and Lord is sweetly sung on nearly every song on Christian radio. What do these titles really mean? Jesus first is the Christ. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. He's the one that was promised to deliver throughout the entire Old Testament. Paul's already said he is the now revealed mystery of the ages. He is the divine or God-given tradition passed down. And Jesus is Lord. Culturally, in the Roman world, Caesar was deified. They would have seen Caesar as Lord everywhere they looked. So Paul's use of the there is emphatic. Jesus is the one and only Lord. There is no other. And the Greek word for Lord here is kurios, which is how the Greek Old Testament translated Yahweh. So saying Jesus Christ is the kurios is saying Jesus Christ is God, the one who is absolutely sovereign, the one with all authority. So saying, Jesus, saying Christ Jesus the Lord is weighty, and I know I usually skim right over. Because of who Christ Jesus the Lord is, the first imperative is to walk in him. Walking was a metaphor in the Old Testament for living. It encompassed both belief and behavior. There was no separation between knowledge and action. What you did showed what you believed, and what you believed directed what you did. And Paul says to walk in him. It's a command to live in such a way that shows they've received Christ Jesus the Lord. In most other translations, the so there in the ESV, most other translations say continue, which is another example of the Colossians walking, they're already walking in Christ, and they're told to keep it up. Verse 7, being rooted and built up encompass having a strong foundation, not forsaking the gospel they were taught by Epaphras. Rooted, an example from horticulture, should make us think of abiding in the vine as a branch from John 15. Built up from construction should make us think of Peter's living stones in 1 Peter 2 that make a spiritual house together, a holy priesthood. Strong foundations lead to being firmly established in the faith, not easily swayed or moved. Rooted, built up, and established are all written in the passive voice showing that it is God that is doing this work, which should naturally lead to an abounding in thanksgiving in the hearts of the Colossians. This is a true humility of realizing their faith comes from God. It's not anything of their own accord, which leads to overflowing gratitude. See to it uh, in verse 8 in the ESV doesn't quite grasp the urgency that's there. Paul is saying, beware, watch out for, remember, stay on your guard. Just because the danger isn't imminent doesn't mean the Colossians can turn a blind eye and ignore the false teaching altogether. There are false teachers that want to take the Colossians captive, carrying them off away from the truth and freedom found only in Christ. Philosophy in that verse in Paul's day was used to describe any sense of group, thought system, theories, or views about God, the world, and life. 
The false teachers were probably pushing their own teaching as the best among many philosophies, but Paul says it was vain, empty, deceitful, and according to the tradition of man. This is a sharp contrast to the gospel we've seen. The gospel is eternal truth, holds the hope of glory, is full of glorious riches, and keeps the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. And the gospel is according to God. The elemental spirits of the world or elementary principles came down to about three different interpretations. <laughs> so we're, I'm going to give those to you, do what you will with them. Uh, number one, uh, it could have been components of the universe. So think the sun, moon, stars, planets. There was an ancient worldview with a tendency to spiritualize these heavenly beings. We see God warn the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4.19 from being tempted to worship the sun, moon, and stars. And the temptation was still around at this point in history, too. The second interpretation could be fundamental principles of a particular area of study. So Paul could be uh, using this term to describe the Old Testament law and its basic requirements like circumcision, abstinence from certain foods, celebration of holy days. And we certainly do see elements of Judaism in the false teaching. So could be it. Number three. Um, spiritual beings, so giving too much attention to spiritual beings like angels that we're going to see in a little bit and the rules associated with them. The false teaching could have regarded these spiritual beings highly, which was obviously a distraction from Christ. I know that doesn't present a clear and crisp answer for what that phrase means, and it could even be a mixture of the three. It could be something else that Paul had in mind. The actual emphasis falls on the false teaching not being according to Christ. Verses 9 and 10, Paul focuses on what is found in Christ. He is the fullness of God incarnated, fully God and fully man. This is known as the hypostatic union, the two natures of Jesus, the full presence of God dwelled within the man Jesus. So I want you to hear from John 1, verses 1 through 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And at the uh, verse 10, it says, you have been filled in him. The believers have been filled in him. John 1, 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There's nothing else the Colossians could ever spiritually need. It's thought the false teachers were offering a fuller, deeper spiritual experience within their practices, giving reason to why Paul continues to use full and filled language throughout this letter. Ends verse 10 by reminding us that Christ is the ultimate authority. He created all things. He's before all things, we saw in chapter 1. This could be a comfort against the false teaching, insisting upon keeping other or spiritual beings or spiritualized things appeased. Christ is over all. Verses 11 and 12, Paul then brings up circumcision and baptism. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign for the Old Covenant. False teachers could be demanding adherence to circumcision laws, or Paul is using circumcision as a metaphor for overcoming the flesh, 
which is here would refer to our sinful nature, comes up at the end of the chapter. Either way, Paul reminds the Colossians their flesh has already been removed because of their union with Christ. Baptism is a sign for the new covenant. Baptism is the picture that identifies us with Christ's burial and resurrection. We've died to our old sinful flesh, and because of Christ's resurrection, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 13 gives us a summary of the two metaphors. Christians were once dead in their sin. God powerfully made them alive through Christ's atoning work and making it possible for their sins to be forgiven. There was no action on the believer's part. We were dead. Dead people can't make themselves alive. God raised Christ from the dead, and he raises believers along with him. The next verse tells us that our sin was recorded as a debt owed to God, and our sinful record was completely removed by God because it was nailed to the cross of Christ, giving us a picture of the inscription of the crimes that would have been nailed to the cross of the crucified. Pilate had one put on Jesus's cross that read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, just to give you the picture of what this verse means. And so I'm convinced that the third verse in the hymn, It Is Well, comes from this verse in Colossians. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Verse 15, at the cross, Jesus disarmed or stripped power from all rulers and authorities, whether those are the spiritual beings or the material things being spiritualized or just generally the demonic forces that demand that there's still an indebtedness believers must pay, continually accusing believers of the sin that's already been canceled on the cross. This triumph gives a picture of Roman generals parading captured enemies through the city in complete victory. The victory of the cross is certain and sure. The cross, which was considered a shameful death, was used as a tool to actually put God's enemies to shame. And Christ's victory is also the victory of all those in him. Because of that victory, the Colossians will not have to give in to the pressures of the false teachers for extra rules, practices, or experiences to appease God or for more spiritual fulfillment. So in this last section, we get the clearest descriptions of the false teaching. We're going to look at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." 
verses 16 and 17 there first show us that there are food and drink regulations and a requirement to observe Jewish holy days. Old Testament law had restrictions on unclean food, but not generally drink. This would have been beyond even Jewish law for the general population. The freedom from the slavery to the law was being undermined in this false teaching. The law and the festivals and Sabbaths, they pointed to Christ. Those in Christ no longer have to adhere. We have the reality. You got to see the writer of Hebrews cover that more in depth in this week's homework. Jesus is better because he's no longer a shadow. He's the real thing. Verse 18 tells us that the false teachers were sitting in judgment over believers. They claimed to be living the humblest of lifestyles, extremely self-disciplined and abstaining from every kind of enjoyment, but they were actually proud. Scholars think this false humility idea mentioned might include a nod of like fasting for show, which would go right along with their food and drink regulations, but fasting was also a preparation for visions in pagan worship. So the false teachers, it says, go on and on about these visions or spiritual experiences, which is the opposite of Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, who shared that he had visions from the Lord that were of surpassing greatness. However, he refrained from speaking about it as to not become conceited. So we see opposite there. And the false teaching also involved the worship of angels. Several commentators said that this was they were probably encouraged to worship angels for protection from whatever the elemental spirits were. So that might kind of seem out there. Uh, it did to me, but then once I read that part, it made me think of the way some people talk about guardian angels today. I mean, it can get a little wonky. <laughs> and so we're actually given a picture in Scripture of someone trying to worship angels. And so I want you to hear what happens. At the end of the Apostle John's vision recorded in Revelation, he says he fell down to worship at the feet of the angel that showed him such things. But the angel responded and said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The false teachers had a faux humility. They were actually arrogant, which is the opposite of what true faith in Christ brings about. We saw that back in verse 7. Their arrogance revealed their worldliness. Instead of sensuous minds, the TNIV uses unspiritual minds. And so a commentator that was using that translation said that Paul is essentially saying here, the false teachers have minds all right, but minds that are thoroughly oriented to this world rather than the next. Verse 19 shows us that they have a disconnect from the head, who's the source of all spirituality for the body. Christ is where spiritual growth and nourishment come from, not from additional rules, not from additional practices. Spiritual nourishment and growth come only from being united to him. In verses 20 and 21, Paul reiterates that Christ has triumphed all the worldly powers and asks why anyone would go back under worldly rules. Why leave the freedom that's found in Christ to take on the yoke of slavery again? He then seems to mockingly state the rules of the false teaching. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Real holiness has little to do with these external matters of food and drink and everything to do with the state of the heart. Paul is no doubt thinking about Isaiah 29, 13, which was quoted by Jesus himself that you saw in Mark 7, 
telling the Pharisees that they left the commandments of God and taken to the traditions of man. Jesus further explained his application of that verse to his disciples. Jesus said things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, coveting, adultery, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness are evil things that come from within, and they are what defile a person or make them unclean, not breaking the extra man-made rules of the Pharisees. I also want you to just think about the overlap from that list to the false teachers that Paul has described. Verses 22 and 23, Paul says the false teaching is concerned with material things instead of eternal. They are man-made rules, not divine, and they don't deliver on what they offer. Following these extra rules and being overly concerned with external matters might appear to be wise. Their asceticism appears to be the way of humility, but it's self-made. Simply looking religious does not save. Merely participating in legalistic practices doesn't actually take care of our sin problem. Only Christ can do that. Douglas Moo said, For Paul, addition means subtraction. One cannot add to Christ without, in effect, subtracting from his exclusive place in creation and in salvation history. And adding to Christ is exactly what the false teaching threatening Colossae does. What we can gather from the Colossian heresy is that the false teaching required adherence to Jewish holidays and strict food and drink regulations, which had become matters of freedom for believers because of Christ. The false teaching included the worship of angels, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The false teaching promised to give a fuller spiritual experience by claiming access to the visionary realm. The false teaching claimed to stop the sinful nature through severe self-discipline. The false teaching was an invitation to captivity, a return to slavery to man-made traditions. The fruit of the false teaching was arrogance. Paul says the false teachers had plausible arguments and appeared to be wise, but he completely discounted the false teaching with the truth of the Colossians' union with the Christ he had shown them in chapter 1. Many aspects of this particular false teaching make our 21st century American selves scratch our heads, right? Like, what is elemental spirits? What is this worship of angels? And if I'm honest, the more I looked at it, the more confused I became. <laughs> so what does the Colossian heresy have to do with us? What can it show us? What can it teach us? It first shows the need for us to be aware, even when the threat isn't imminent, and to grow in our discernment of what the truth of the gospel of Christ is, so that we can tell when something that sounds believable is slightly off. We do that by beholding Christ through the word of God. The Colossian heresy shows us that false teaching distracts and takes away from Christ. False teaching will take us captive by imposing legalistic, man-made rules on our lives, elevating them above the commandments of God and the matters of the heart. It shows us that false teaching yields bad fruit and that false teaching doesn't come through on what it offers. We need full assurance in the gospel we've received, just like the Colossians. And that comes from our union with Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we saw in the first section that Christ in us means that we have strength during suffering and we have energy 
for ministry to the church. We saw in the second section, Christ in us means we have the Lord, the God-given tradition, the mystery of the ages directing our lives, belief and behavior, knowledge and action. And we saw in the third section that Christ in us means we have the reality, the substance of what the shadows of the Old Testament pointed to. And in the whole passage, we see Christ in us means we have no other spiritual need apart from him because the fullness of God, forgiveness of sin, and freedom from our flesh in this world are found in him alone. He is all we need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you of the hope of Christ, that he is all we need. God, that when um, any false teaching, uh, whether it is right in our face or just right outside, just tempting us or luring us in, Lord, that we can be fully assured in the gospel that you've given us. And I pray for these women that you would use your spirit, use your word to grow us all in discernment, to be able to tell um, what is what's slightly off to be able to know know Christ so well to know the gospel so well that we can tell when something is off something that would take us away from you take us away from the freedom that is found in you and I pray that we would rest in that full assurance that we would rest in our union with Christ and remember that you are all we need I pray as we break into discussion groups, Lord, that you would just use those for, um, for us to just continue to grow in understanding of this complex passage and that we would just be an encouragement to one another to just keep pushing in, keep, keep going in this study. Ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. So I know it's been a couple of weeks, but we're going to stick with uh, the groups that we had. And so if you, um, if you 